So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to continue our theme as uh, uh, you heard earlier in the service. And our theme is some of the things that Jesus never said. And when I introduced this uh, whole series a few weeks ago, I said, obviously, there are, the world is filled with things Jesus never said. He never said, I'll have a caramel latte. You know, he never, he never said, I'll take the central line. There's endless things that Jesus never said. And that's not what the, uh, the theme of these talks is about. They're about things that Jesus never said that we've adopted into church culture. So last week, uh, when I wasn't here, I was away uh, visiting Liverpool, where uh, Oasis has started a church a couple of years ago in Toxteth, which is uh, growing and doing great work in the community there, a tough community to work in. Uh, Jill spoke and uh, uh, looked at... You did speak, didn't you, Jill? That's right. Okay. And looked at the fact that Jesus never said... And now for a time of worship. Do you see how that's crept in? And now for a time of worship. Our worship leader. We have some uh, community news. We do some notices. We talk about real stuff that's happening in the big world. And then we say, ah, now that's done. And now for a time of worship. You meet people who halfway through a service on a Sunday morning will say, and now over to the worship band for a time of worship. Which begs the question, what on earth was the rest of the stuff all about? And why on earth were we doing it? A dichotomy built into our lives where we banish God to the margins of society instead of recognizing that our whole lives are lived for him. Jesus never said religion and politics don't mix. Do you know who this guy is? Anybody guess who he is? Let me tell you about him. Uh, um, he, um, well, is, does anybody know? You don't know who this man is. This man is an extraordinary man. He's dead now. He was the archbishop of a a place in the northeast of Brazil where I've had the privilege of going, one of the poorest places I've ever been, Recife. And his name was Helder Camara. That's what he looked like. This is what Helder Camara said. When I feed the hungry, they call me a saint. When I ask why the hungry have no food, they call me a communist. You've heard that quote, haven't you? Yeah, everybody's heard that quote. This extraordinary man who through the 80s stood up to a military regime which had grabbed Brazil by the neck and was starving the poor. The rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer. There was a huge divide growing up. The south of Brazil was thriving, the north of the country was struggling. That could never happen today, of course, in our country. Of course it's happening all the time. And Helder Camara stood up. But I introduced it by showing you his picture because that's what he looked like. We hear these great stories of people who make quotes like this. When I feed the hungry, they call me a saint. When I ask why the hungry have no food, they call me me a communist. He survived several threats on his life. He was bombed. He was stabbed. He was driven out of town. And that is what he looked like. In other words, those agents who make a difference for the kingdom of God look normal. They're not super saints. He hasn't got an S tattooed on his chest. He's not got a six pack. He's not made of some other kind of stuff than us. The only difference is he decided that he couldn't be silent. He decided that silence is complicity. He decided that silence is agreement. 
and he knew that he had to make a difference. A great quote. The problem is that we get stuck. Jesus said this. We didn't have this as a reading. We had uh, another reading, which we'll come to in a moment. Jesus said, we all know, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So surely being a Christian is about worship. It's about prayer. It's about the inner journey. It's, we've got to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He deserves them. From that reading that Danielle just read to us, the, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Pay your taxes, says Romans 13, 1. Pay your taxes. Those authorities, they're established by God. So, be compliant. Fit in. The church around the world has often adopted that stance. So what do we make of all of that? In the Gospels, Jesus is confronted by two sets of religious leaders. Uh, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, where that famous quote, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God's, comes from. They're called the Herodians and the Pharisees. The Herodians don't make many appearances in the New Testament. But if we'd have read from Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, it would have told us this. That the Herodians and the Pharisees went to Jesus... And they asked him what his attitude was to the state. And it says, and he asked them to give them a coin, uh, give him a coin. And he said, whose head is it on the coin? And they said, Caesar's head is on the coin. And then Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And the end of the reading says, and they were utterly amazed at his answer and they went away. The reason for that is really quite simple, though as normal, you've got to dig behind the text to understand it. The Herodians, though we don't hear about them very much in the New Testament, were a group of people who'd sided with the Romans. They were Jews, but they felt that the way to keep Israel together was to saddle up with the Romans, to suck up to the Romans, and uh, you know, to keep applauding them. So that the Pharisees, however were the opposite. They felt that the way to keep in with God was to reject, reject the Romans and run them through if you got a chance. And so both groups come to Jesus and they ask him, look, should we pay our taxes or not? It's actually a question about taxes. There was a poll tax that the Romans had on the people. Should we pay our taxes or not? One group wants one answer and the other group wants the opposite answer. And Jesus takes a coin and he says, Whose head's that? And they say, it's Caesar's head. He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. But he knows that they know, because they're all steeped in the Old Testament. When he says, render God to God what is God's, he's triggering a memory for them. And it's at this. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and all those who live in it. So Jesus is giving this answer. He's really saying, nothing belongs to Caesar. Nothing belongs to anyone but God. God rules the whole earth. You all know that. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Nothing. Give to God what is God's. Everything. What does Paul mean when he says, back here, 
the authorities that exist have been established by God. Well, the thing is, Paul can't mean anything other than what Jesus would mean. Because Paul is a follower of Jesus, not the other way around. We often read Paul's epistles badly, don't we? We get dead scared of what they say about all sorts of things, remembering that Paul followed Jesus, not Jesus followed Paul. And that simple um, equation will help us through a huge amount of trouble. In 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, Paul writes this. I have been in prison more frequently than anyone else, Paul's saying. For Jesus, I've been in prison more frequently than you. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten by rods. Uh, Paul had been in Roman prisons and being beaten with rods was a Roman punishment. Being beaten with lashes was a Jewish punishment. Paul wrote one Cor- uh, two Corinthians 18 months before he wrote Romans. 18 months before Paul said, obey the authorities, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, telling you how he'd been in prison simply because he didn't obey the authorities. So is he confused? Let's look at Romans 13 verse 1, the entirety of it. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which has been established by God. The authorities that exist have been established by God. What Paul is saying is, obey the law in as far as you remember what Jesus taught. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God comes first. And when it comes to the point where I'm asked to choose between what Caesar says and what I'm called to do by Christ, I'll choose every time to do what I'm called to do by Christ, which is why I ended up in a Roman jail and why I got beaten with rods three times and why I was lashed five times with 39 lashes and why I've been stoned, etc., etc., etc. Here's John Stott. You may have heard of John Stott. He uh, died a few years ago, preached in London, famous evangelical leader. He said this, Paul, and he's saying this about this passage. This is from his commentary on that passage in Romans. Paul cannot be taken to mean that all the Caligulas, Roman emperor, the Herods, the Neros, the Domitians, another uh, terrible Roman emperor who crushed the church, of New Testament times and all the Hitlers and Stalins and Amines and Saddams of our times were personally appointed by God. That God is responsible for their behaviour or that their authority is in no circumstance to be resisted. Our task is to look at everything through the lens of Jesus. To do anything else is not just a lack of Christian commitment, it turns out to be a kind of heresy for the church to be silent. In the 1930s, Hitler did a deal with the Catholic Church. Uh, He signed a concord with them. And the Catholic Church agreed not to talk about the removal of Jews if its bishops would be protected 
You can read a huge amount about that. But I talk about the Catholic Church, can talk about the Protestant Church in Germany as well. The whole of the Protestant Church in Germany agreed, signed an agreement with Hitler. A few leaders, including a guy called uh, Karl Barth, you may have heard of him, and Martin Niebuhr, they put together what they called the Barman Confession. And a few church leaders said, no, this is wrong. We've got to stand up. But the rest of the German church offered its pulpits to Hitler and effectively became part of the Nazi movement for that reason. Simply because they never had the courage to speak out. But it was deeper than that. It was their theology. Jesus once said, my kingdom isn't of this world. He said it to Pilate. That was taken by a famous Christian that you may have heard of, um, Martin Luther, the great reformer. And Martin Luther developed a theory in the 1500s called the two kingdoms. He said, Jesus said, my kingdom isn't of this world. Jesus' kingdom is about the inner spiritual journey. The outer temporal world, that's ruled over by the Holy Roman Emperor. He was the big shot in Europe who the Pope had saddled up to. Our job is to look after the inner life of the individual believer, not the outside world of political engagement. And so it came to be that by the time you'd reached the, the 20th century, the 1900s, 400 years of history had taught, had taught um, German Christians that they couldn't get involved. It wasn't that they weren't compassionate. It wasn't that they didn't want to rescue Jews who were being sent in trains to be tortured and exterminated. It's that their theology taught them that their role was different in society. Bad theology costs lives all of the time. Bad theology uh, leads to political situations, uh, to injustice that we don't want to see. One of my favourite quotes of all time is simply this. Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop of um, Cape Town in South Africa, who, remember, stood up against the apartheid machine. He said this. If we're to say that religion cannot be concerned with politics, then we're really saying that there is no substantial part of human life in which God's will does not, uh, does not run. If it is not God's, then whose is it? The church is called, the church is tasked, the church has to be involved with all of these areas of life. This perhaps is my favourite favorite quote on this subject ever. I've written several books in which I've um, quoted this quote. J.C. Ryle was the Bishop of um, Liverpool. And he was the Bishop of Liverpool, a Bishop of Liverpool during the 19th century. And this is what he says about Paul, whom he calls St. Paul. When St. Paul says, come out and be separate, he did not mean that Christians ought uh, to take no interest in anything on earth except religion. 
to care nothing about the government of one's own country, to be utterly indifferent to the per persons who guide its councils and make its laws. All this may seem very right and proper in the eyes of some people, but I take leave to think that it is an idle, selfish neglect of duty. It's a form of heresy. We need to think about our inside story. There are two stories in which we live our lives, and we're going to be thinking a lot more about this at the beginning of next year as we launch the new year. Every uh, church has a New Year service that basically allows people, get, gives people the opportunity to set New Year resolutions for us. We're going to look more deeply at that whole thing, much more deeply this year. We're going to look at the inside story of, of our lives, not about setting resolutions that we don't keep. There are two stories in our lives, to say this for now. There's the outside story... And that's the stuff that happens to you. Stuff that happened to you on the way here this morning. You discovered that uh, the tube didn't work. You discovered that uh, it's not going to be open till uh, February. You discovered when you came out that the bus was late. You discovered that all sorts of things. You discovered when you came through here that we got this scaffolding up just for this week. You discovered that the library's going in out there. That's our outside story. I was uh, coming up the road and I saw Mark and he was just coming back from a spin class. There you are, a very fit man on an early Sunday morning. So that's stuff that happens to us. But there's an inside story. And our inside story is the story that controls us. Our inside story is all the stuff that we've come to believe over the years because we've been told it and we've accepted it about who we are. All the teaching that we've built up, all the examples that we've been shown... That's our inside story. Most of us are unaware of our inside story, and yet our inside story controls the whole way we react and respond all of the time. Even confronting our inside story is a difficult task. It, um, it means stopping, doesn't it? It means looking back into who we are. It means examining our prejudices. It means examining our responses. Why do I behave and react as I behave and react? That's a hard thing. It means looking back and reconfronting pain that we've lived through. It means looking back and reconfronting attitudes and teaching that we absorb that's unconsciously now making us the person we are and giving us the attitudes we have. Our outside story is what happens to us through our lives. Our inner story is the story that's controlling us. How do we come to respond with, in a Christ-like way to the world around us? By confronting the fact that we need to look at our inner story and what we're called to. Did you know um, that um, this week um, the... Um, the, fiscal, uh, the, uh, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the IFS, as it's always called on Radio 4, <laughs> um, with the Joseph Roundtree uh, Foundation, uh, published some research. And they talk about the expanding gap between the poor and the middle classes in our country. It's forever expanding. It's a crisis point. It's reaching crisis point. In London, through um, this last week and the week before, 
there have been several near riots that have taken place, huge-scale disturbances around South London. Some of them have hit the news, some haven't. Well, it's because the weather's hot, say people. Yeah, the weather's hot, but it's to do with underlying injustices in our culture. It's to do with those who have and those who don't have. Here is a quote from, uh, from uh, the um, Institute of Fiscal Studies and Joseph Roundtree. The vote for Brexit is highly likely to have a significant negative impact on national income over the next few years. Virtually all serious analysis suggests that the uncertainty of the UK's future relationship with the EU will lead to a smaller economy and hence lower living standards over the next few years than we would have otherwise had. And then it goes on to explain how this impact will be felt on the poor and not on the middle class and not on the rich. Did you know that this week, in our, uh, th uh, this last week, a new report has been uh, issued by the Institute for Health and Social Care and it says that just last year there were 5,700 new cases of uh, FGM in our country. The government has introduced compulsory reporting for NHS trusts and for GP surgeries around this, as some of you will know, because you work in that field of work. And they say that FGM is most common amongst five to nine-year-olds. That's our country. I'm sure you know that um, uh, Mike Ashley, uh, the boss of um, that uh, huge um, sports company, Sports Direct, um, uh, he appeared at long last, a few weeks ago, in front of a government uh, a select committee. And they reported back this week. They described a working culture in Sports Direct. This is a quote. A working culture in Sports Direct where people are systematically treated without respect. They're underpaid. They're bullied. They're exploited. They don't earn a minimum wage. And a particularly bad example of a business that exploits its workers in order to maximize profits, a Victorian workhouse with workers who are not paid the mid, uh, minimum wage, who are penalized for taking short breaks for drinking water or for some time off from work when unwell. Some female workers said they were promised permanent contracts in return for sexual favours, and the report goes on. That's our country. It's the way it is. So what do we say? Now, the thing is, you probably thought that when I spoke about politics and religion don't mix, that we've got that down in this church, and we realise that politics and religion do mix, and that it's fine and it's good to have political opinions as individual Christians. But as a church, as a church, as the church in this country, should we be standing up and making a difference? And what should we be saying together? So to have a view that's formed around any of those individuals, uh, individual subjects as an individual person is a good thing. But to develop views about where our society is going and to speak out as the church in Brazil spoke out for the poor, that's a better thing. And we're kind of allergic to that a bit still, aren't we? We're allergic to sharing our personal views. We're allergic, we're scared of perhaps forming a view for or against something. 
and yet we must do. In reality, we do this all the time. This school, uh, this church, developed this academy. Academies are a political way of dealing with the issue of education. Why did we develop academies? I, I was talking with Jerry last night and I said about academies, I'm not actually to tell you the truth. We are the second biggest supplier of academies in Britain, but I'm not uh, necessarily pro-academies or against academies. I'm really not. I'm pro-great education. I'm against any child not receiving numerously and literacy. And I'm against the fact that so many kids turn up and they can't study because they've not been able to eat. That's what I'm against. That's what I want to fight. And so I will stand up for any policy by anyone that delivers great education to children right now whilst we're all waiting for a kind of political utopia in which stuff runs right and runs the way we want it. I'm against the fact that people don't have access to good medicine and good health and great housing. I'm against the fact that in this area there are endless people who are priced out of the market whilst whole blocks stand empty because they're owned by non-residents. What are we going to do about that? Has the church got anything to say about that? Or is that some kind of extracurricular activity for the really kind of radical whilst the rest of us get on with singing hymns and reading the Bible? The truth is, we have to be concerned. There are certain issues that churches love to talk about. In the 80s, it was about abortion. The church was dead against abortion. In the 90s, it was about the uh, age of gay consent. The church was dead against um, lowering that. But we have to be involved in all sorts of issues. Education and health and employment and housing. We can't dip into the political cycle just when it suits us if something comes up about euthanasia yeah the church wants to speak out who wants to vote for a party that only has three policies on its pet subjects our task is to think through what it means for this world to be part of the kingdom of our christ your kingdom your come your will be done Tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, uh, we're uh, opening here uh, the local library, as you know. Why are we taking on the local library? I was in uh, uh, yesterday morning and talking to the guys setting up the library right now, and um, there was a protest going on in Lower Marsh where the old library is closing, and uh, we're opening the new library. It was a really well-run protest. It didn't even rip down the posters saying that the uh, library was opening here. Uh, that's very nice. And all the demonstrators came across mid-morning and had a coffee in our coffee shop. There you go. <laughs> which they paid for, which is wonderful. And do you know something? It's fantastic they're demonstrating. It's fantastic that they care about literacy and numeracy. It's fantastic that they want to keep a library service open. Do I think it's the best thing in the whole world that we're taking on the library? This is a strange thing to say because I want you to be committed to it. No, I don't. But in a world where there would be no library for young people who otherwise can't read, yes, we should. I was on a train, and the train was trundling along this a few weeks ago, and I sat opposite, you know, as you do in a carriage, I sat opposite, and I sat, um, I sat, um, my computer's just going to go off, so I'm just going to plug it in. Um, I sat opposite a guy who was um, in his early 30s, and he was reading, uh, well, no, he wasn't. He was with his little son, who must have been 
eight or nine, I guess. And his little son was reading this book. And uh, I, I don't know what the book was, you know, reading through this text. And his, his son looks up at his dad and he says, Dad, what does ornamental mean? And his dad smiles at him and then explains what ornamental means. It means decorative. What does decorative mean? And then he explained what decorative meant. I wished I could have recorded it. And I mourned. I almost cried for the hundreds of kids in this area who no one will ever tell what decorative means or ornamental. And no one will take them and read with them. Because when you can read, the world's opened up to you. When you can read, your imagination is fired. When you're asked to write an essay about the countryside, and you've not experienced the countryside, how can you, how can you write that essay? What can you do? When it comes up in the sats, in the, in the grammar part, to write an essay when you're um, age 10 uh, about, uh, about your experience of the country and you've not been there and you've not understood it and you've not been invited into a world of books, you're stuck. That's why we're running this library. Do you know that many of the parents um, of, of children in our schools are less able to get a grip of English than their sons and daughters are. That's why we're starting the language cafe. Abby, one of our students, is leading that. All of these things we do, all of these things from the, from the uh, children's centre, the play space, through to the primary school and the secondary school and the college and, and the farm and now the library and the coffee shop, these aren't just social ways of getting involved to avoid the inner journey. These are the outworking of the inner journey with Christ. The transformation by him. A quote from me to finish. The real problem with our world, this is just me actually, I made this up. The <laughs> so that's why it's got no quote marks for anyone, so it might not be true. <laughs> the real problem with our world isn't so much the secularization of society as the privatization privatization of the church or you could say the sacralization of the church we moan about the fact that our world not everyone wants to go to church and people are abandoning the christian faith i don't think that's the real problem i think the real problem is the church has moved indoors and lost its way and it's time we were re-engaged not as an alternative to an inner journey with christ but as an outworking of that wonderful inner journey with Christ who comes to transform us from the inside out, to change our inner story and to bring us purpose and to bring us hope. I suggest we take a moment and we pause and we reflect in silence. And then I'm going to ask Flick and the band to come and lead us in a song.